Hi, welcome to the Indie Wine Podcast. My name is Matt Wood, and this is episode 20. Today we'll hear from Shant Angulian from Le Lune and Populous Wines. Shant and Diego started in the tradition of the French vignerons with who they trained, leasing and farming many other vineyard sources and using a very light touch in the winery. Both graduated from UC Davis. We talk about that as well as how they find their vineyards, working in France, some unusual techniques for less extracted wines, their new winery, and how they pass on some of the knowledge they've gained. Here we go. Yeah, I think we're looking probably about two weeks, maybe potentially more. I think it depends on the varieties in the regions and stuff too. It kind of like last year was a little bifurcated also. Um, okay. Cause there was a, the spring was last year was very dry. Um, like it didn't really, there was all that rain, no, not last year, the year before. So, mm-hmm. you know, I still think of it as last year until it's this year, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it, it rained a bunch in October, November and December. And then like January to March, it was totally dry. Right. It was like the first year in recorded history yeah. around here that there was no rain in January. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, right? yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then. And so that was a bit warmer and so kind of early stuff like, you know, white varieties or in Lodi or regions like that, that are earlier, they kind of came out early. And then there was actually this frost, I think it was in May um, oh. or April that hit a lot of people, especially in the foothills, but a little bit in Sonoma too. Mm-hmm. And then it got cold. So then stuff that hadn't broken bud yet then got pushed back later. So there was almost like these two it was like again it was almost bifurcated yeah. in a way like stuff that was early was early stuff that was late was very late and we saw that particularly also then kind of with regions too like mendocino usually a little bit later we get later varieties and that stuff was like not you know wanting to get ripe you know okay. and so the harvest was almost like some of the early stuff was on time and then there was like a little window in the middle was the window nice or did it just stretch things out to even oh, yeah, no. longer, e- even more months for you? I mean, it was good for sure. I mean, especially us in the new place is like, I remember there was a, a moment where, you know, we have our vineyards and we're like looking at our tanks and, you know, we have the whiteboard with like what's going where and we're like, oh man, we're going to have to press all these tanks, like work overnight, you know, whatever, bring these grapes in. And then we went to go check them again and we're like, oh, they haven't, the sugars haven't moved and the flavors haven't really changed. So like we need to stop picking. So we had like a week or so we just kind of halted bringing in fruit, you know, to, which is then that's good. You know, the more we can wait, I think the longer Mm -hmm. the grapes can hang, you know, ideally we want the grapes to be out there as long as they can be while still having the right balance, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's mostly like maintaining acidity is a, is a big thing, not, and not having too high alcohol. And so yeah, that was that was good in, in terms of us, especially in the new space, getting clear tanks out and then taking a pause. But I mean, it does run you a little ragged. And my wife, I kept being like, it's like one more week, like two more weeks, we're gonna be done picking. <laughs> She's like, didn't you say that last month, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it ended up all right. But I think this year is gonna be a little more, just everything is kind of shifted because there wasn't that odd spring. I mean, it was odd because it was so wet and cold, but. Mm-hmm it wasn't kind of split like the year before. And then that's really good yeah. too. And that the vines are vines are a lot healthier and there's a much higher crop load also. So that will also kind of delay kind of push things. It back. Yeah. More yeah. like 
2018 or 19. Okay. We're kind of wetter, cooler vintages mm-hmm. in the winter beforehand. Yeah, I think 18, a lot of people were able to just kind of let stuff hang for a long time. Mm-hmm. It seemed like without sugars weren't really going up and acids weren't really dropping. They let it rise. Yeah, <laughs> totally. A little bit. Totally. And then those are vintages. I mean, you know, we started our first year, first real year was 2014. And so 14, 15 were real kind of hot, dry years, 16 to an extent, but wasn't as much, but still was, I call it like a drought year. And then 17 was also pretty dry. And mm-hmm. there was a big heat wave in uh, the end of August or so. Yeah, I was going to say like Labor Day, maybe. Yeah, which is pretty typical. But yeah, 18 and 19, we didn't have those heat waves. And that was like, you know, we talked to the growers we work with up in Mendocino and they're like, Oh yeah, this is normal. <laughs> okay. You know, when they've been growing for 50 years, it's yeah. like this is what I'm used to, not, you know, people picking in early September. It's like we we'd all we wouldn't even start until October, basically, mm-hmm. you know, with Carignan or Cabernet or Petit Syrah or whatever up in Mendocino County. Yeah, it was nice those years. Twenty was heat wave, smoke, everything not good. Mm-hmm. And then twenty-one also just like very dry more heat but then 22 is kind of again a little wetter and still yeah very low crop so it went very fast also okay. but then this year shaping up to be it's going to be you know you're almost like is stuff gonna get ripe like which is okay. something i've never even really i felt like needed to ask myself you know mm-hmm. um you saw a little glimmers of it last year um but i don't know we'll see i guess okay you know. Well, yeah, you, you work a lot in Mendocino. Yeah. Are those longer, is that cooler climate something you, you enjoy? What, what drew you to Mendocino? Yeah. Um, so we started working there, um, I guess to step back a little bit, my partner Diego and I, we met at Davis together, um, studying in the viticulture and knology program. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another, a good group of folks that were kind of like-minded and, getting into natural wines at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a cool way to get into natural wines was through the lens of like the Davis education, where it was like, you could talk to your professors. You're like, well, if you don't add sulfur, you don't do this, you don't inoculate, like what are all the different things that come? And, and you know, I think the cool thing, a lot of people are like, oh, Davis have this idea, teaches you something or another in it most assuredly can, but no, no one ever told me like, this is how you need to make wine. Okay. You know, it was more like a lot of the folks they're into wine because they're fascinated about flavor chemistry or microbiology or other processes, other, other academic pursuits that wine happened to be like the way that they approached this, these questions, you know, so I'd say they were scientists more than you know, wine professionals and, mm-hmm. and, and things like that, which is cool, you know? So it's a very theoretical education and then it's up to you to kind of decide how you want it to approach it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, we learn all this stuff, not to manipulate, but to take yourself out of the, the question. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, graduated and I knew that I wanted to move to Europe for a couple of years because um, I was into, you know, lower intervention, kind of these very traditional wines, you know, it was Georgian stuff, you know, Northern Italian, Jura, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the things 
that in you know the early 2010s were unknown it yeah, felt like at the time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it was like well i got this great technical like education now let's go get some like practical experience you know working mm -hmm. with folks like this so move there diego also moved there he um through his family has spanish citizenship so he was working at a place and we were kind of there not together but in parallel like he was in okay. chinon i was in anjou and we'd meet up on the weekends and go visit you know we'd look up wine terroirs and then yeah. like find the phone number at the end and then call them with our pay-as-you-go cell phone and yeah, broken nice. French be like, Hey, can we come visit you? And they're mm -hmm. like, sure. You know, so we'd go visit everyone that we could in that region, just tasting okay. and stuff. And so fast forward a couple of years, we both came back to California. Diego, he's originally grew up just outside of Modesto in uh, Escalon, like in the Central oh, yeah. Valley. Mm -hmm. um, and his family has some you know, great growing in the history there. Okay. And we were kind of interested in, in making wine and we realized that if we kind of teamed up, we could try and, you know, do more together. And having worked in France, we worked with people that were, they grew the grapes, they made the wine, mm -hmm. the own, you know? Yeah. And we didn't see that really happening on the smaller scale in California and especially in the natural wine scene at the time. Yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you. So you guys got into growing your own grapes yeah. and farming really early yeah. on in both your careers, but also kind of the California natural wine scene of that time. Totally, totally. And I mean, again, the folks that we worked for, you know, I worked with this guy, Philippe Vallette in Macon. Um, uh, and then after that, a bit with Julie Balany, the late Julie Balany just passed, but, um, and they were like, I don't buy grapes, you know, mm -hmm. um, I grow the grapes. And then Diego was working for this guy, Didier Barral, who is, mm -hmm. um, I mean, down in the South of France, the it's, I think his father started the domain Leon Barral. Okay. And they're just these like fiercely wild, like intense wines that are expressive of the place and the guy also, cause he okay. like uses cows and bulls and pigs, like in the vines to practically prune the vines. And, you know, half the time Diego was there was, more like doing animal husbandry than okay. any winemaking or even grape growing to mm -hmm. an extent. And, you know, you could just see, you know, you taste the wine and if you know the person and you know their process, you can see so clearly that connection. Mm -hmm. And I think we were just really drawn to that because we both had had experience in the wine industry also prior to Davis even. And, you know, it's like you're at the winery and grapes show up on a truck and then you, and it's, and it's great. And you were, you know, places we were making great wines and stuff, but not having that connection. Like we had working with these folks in France. And so we wanted to get that going, but that proved very challenging. Um, in that we talked to people who had vineyards and they're like, cool. Like, where's your tractor? Where are your references? Do you have a crew? And we're like, no, 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 no. I lived in France for a couple of years. Like I know how to do this. Like, don't worry. I Davis, I went to Davis and they're like, yeah, no, like, and so, you know, we could only find someone with a couple hundred vines in their backyard in Petaluma okay. to get started that first year. That's a start. That's a start, you know, cause then that gets your reference and you can tell someone you farm a vineyard, you know, whatever. But in the course of looking for vineyards to farm, Diego got in touch with some of these growers up in Mendocino County. Okay. Particularly, I think, the first one probably was this guy, Larry Venturi, mm -hmm. up near Ukiah. So that's 
on the 101 corridor. Yeah. Um, the 101 actually bifurcated his family's ranch. Oh, did um, it? Okay. Back when they built it. Okay. Uh, you know, okay. which family's not alone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's funny because we Probably have hundreds of others. Yeah. <laughs> we have, you know, parcels that literally like right next to the freeway and, okay. and stuff. Um, and you can see them when you're driving. And, you know, these like folks like Larry or, um, you know, the poor family in Hopland, mm-hmm. you know, they grow grapes, they don't make wine and they sell grapes. Like that's their living. And so there's no chance that we'd ever be able to lease these vines or rent them or farm them ourselves while they still own the land and work the vines. So, sure. but we're like, man, a lot of these vines, like you're planting in the forties, some even earlier. Um, and it was cool talking with them. Cause again, we worked in France and in, you know, I think, we're trying to bring, I don't know, some of that at the time, right, to this day still, like some of the culture, you know, the attention to detail, the attention to like every facet of the process. But a lot of the individual things don't necessarily work because out there it's like, it's very cold and wet. Mm-hmm. Here it's very hot and dry. So it's almost like we have the opposite problems. You know, there you're constantly struggling. How do I get rid of the weeds? Cause they keep growing here we're like how do we keep the weeds alive because they keep the soil living yeah. you know and you know trying to do things like that and so when we met folks like larry or you know john and susan poor who again literally their family's been farming there for 100 years before drip irrigation was invented before roundup was invented mm-hmm. you know all this stuff it's like oh you guys are doing a really like truly california viticulture you know, since like almost as early as vines have been planted here. Yeah. And so it was cool to be able to work with them and work with them by buying grapes, I should say, to develop this relationship, to be able to talk, kind of talk shop, like, mm-hmm. oh, what do you guys do here? How do you do this? You know, let's see your process and then be able to adapt it to then our growing, grape growing, like aspect of what we we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. You get it kind of passed down through the generation. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah what's worked and what hasn't totally which has been it's been really interesting and and yeah has informed a lot of what we do in terms of you know especially dry farming really not spraying very much Mm -hmm. um being a little more uh laissez-faire with like canopy management and things like that um is cool because i think uh not to get too aside i mean you know modern california winemaking you know with the points and big powerful wines and everything like a lot of that is done in the cellar but the advancements of viticulture have also like really have kind of allowed it to happen allowed it and 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 developed in such a way that play a big role on it i mean there's a lot of precision viticulture happening and so for instance like people will not plant to drought tolerant rootstocks because they want to be able to use irrigation to create water deficits early in the season because that will decrease like the amount of pyrazines and other green flavors. Okay. Um, so they can really kind of dial that stuff in. You know, you look at the area of the canopy versus the number of clusters you have, again, to increase like fruitiness in the wines and other things. And, you know, so not only has winemaking changed in a more modern way to make these really more modern wines, like the grape growing has as well. And so again, it's cool to look back to what these these folks are doing you know, a lot of necessity because, you know, they're not getting $30,000 a ton for their Cabernet. Sure. So you can't afford to position every leaf 
perfectly, Mm -hmm. but it does make it for a different style of wine too. And so, you know, we living here, you know, we live in the Bay Area, but we farm grapes in mostly Sonoma because it's basically the closest growing region. But it's cool for us to be able to do this more kind of, I don't know, almost old school style of farming mm-hmm. um, to make these more old school style of wines from Sonoma and to a lesser extent Napa. You know, it's not just let me pick it early versus later. It's like, mm-hmm. let's actually not position the shoots as much. So there's more, they're more shaded. Let's not pull leaves. Let's not till as much. Let's leave more grass on the ground and things like that. And that will affect the grapes, you know, themselves. Just l- kind of looking backwards towards yeah. a couple of generations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe not even that far, you know, looking at probably what viticulture was like when the judgment of Paris and stuff okay. like that happened, mm-hmm. you know, even, mm-hmm. yeah, 50 years. I mean, I guess that's a couple of generations at this point, so. Yeah, how, how many acres are you guys farming currently? Currently, um, currently is always an interesting question. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're always on the look for stuff and then, Things kind of <laughs> go up and down, um, but we're at about like probably 45 acres of vineyards that we farm. Okay. Yeah. Across probably 10-ish vineyard sites. A number of them are right next to each other, which is helpful. Uh, and mm-hmm. then we try and keep them relatively clustered. Uh, so we're mostly in like just in the city of Sonoma, right around that area. There's probably, I don't know, half our vineyards are there. We have one vineyard in uh napa a couple small vineyards in bennett valley and then one larger vineyard in uh like occidental kind of sonoma coast so that's the furthest one that you you farm then uh yeah yeah farm yourself yeah and that one it's kind of it's big enough that it made sense and it's just really interesting um it's like planting in the late 70s chardonnay okay on this kind of historic site that's dry farmed and not tilled and surrounded by redwood trees and we're just like very nice okay we can't not do this like Mm -hmm. it's it's in um it's this uh kind of older woman owns it she doesn't have any heirs and it's in a land trust and we got a hold of the the guy who managed the land trust reached out to us and was interested in like the type of arrangement that we do because well a lot of what we do is um you know we we lease land that we farm so Mm -hmm. we don't own any of the vineyards and basically the way we do it, it works out like, you know, if someone has a vineyard and they don't make wine or they don't grow grapes, then we can offer a pretty good deal. You know, if someone mm-hmm. makes grape or makes wine, like they're probably going to want to keep it or pay someone to farm it. Sure. If someone can do some of the farming themselves, then you can kind of actually make some money if you don't, you know, if you already have the land or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with us, it's kind of like someone bought a house or has a house or, used to do it but now maybe is retired or something and they hire a vineyard manager that ends up costing more than the grapes are worth and so they or they're breaking even on a good year mm-hmm. you know and so we're like hey we'll give you a percent of the value of the grapes you'll be in the black every year you know it works for you it works for us you don't have to worry about the stress of anything and mm-hmm. and um we'll take care of you know the farming you know you don't have to worry about selling it like it's all good yeah and so, you know, it, again, it's not everywhere and it, and it tends to be some of these smaller parcels, like mm-hmm. two to four acres. But okay. if we can kind of string them together where you can even just drive the tractor on the street, um, it works out, you know, sure. you got the best, 
waves from motorists and and other you know people jogging and walking when you're driving the tractor down the street you know and everyone's like hey and you're just like hey <laughs> it's pretty fun <laughs> have you had to convert a lot of those vineyards to your style of farming what kind of yeah shape were they in i guess before you sort of it's, took over the farming yeah it's um, it's been varying shape um i'm trying to think i would say most all of them were conventionally farmed um and nothing crazy i mean they generally sprayed roundup like mm -hmm. and maybe did some systemic stuff but generally not people would uh yes and no it kind of depended sure but, you know that would that would be the main thing and so you know there usually is a a kind of a period of transition so we'll we have like a little knife that runs under the vines try to cultivate the soil under the vines to kind of oxidize any of the residual roundup and stuff like that okay. and then get that moving towards organic production or you know you know we start as soon as we do but that helps to kind of expedite things and get rid of the kind of trace conventional products that are okay. still there yeah okay some were probably a little neglected and others were probably farmed by others up until the day you kind yeah. of took over yeah i mean i think you know none were completely like abandoned you know sure. I, I think generally kind of what would happen was you know someone's farming it again they're not selling the grapes or they're not making money and they're kind of like talk to the farmer like hey i can't pay you this much money so then they'll do you know maybe not sucker as much or not put the compost down you know and so mm -hmm. or do other things that are kind of you know you need to continually invest in for the long-term health of the vineyard mm -hmm. and that's stuff that then we can you know we do you yeah. know and so it's not like I mean, neglected isn't the right word. It's just maybe trying to get by. And you can do that for some amount of time mm -hmm. until it starts catching up to you, you know, and a few of the vineyards that it it kind of was, you know, one of the early vineyards is this Merlot vineyard in Napa. We lease it from a woman whose husband, he planted it in the late 80s, uh, but he passed away probably like, I want to say early 2010s or so mm -hmm. and we started farming in 17 and so yeah she had someone taking care of it and actually we got to know it because we work with a farm labor contractor so they'll help with harvest and other kind of okay high like labor demand times of the year sure and um you know he kind of knew what we were doing and he was like hey you should talk to this lady you know i think she'd be interested in doing what you're doing because oh, nice. like you know, I'm doing this for, she doesn't want to pay it. Like she's late on her payments, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, they were again, doing kind of the, the least they could do sure. to keep the vineyard going. And then, you know, when we came in, you know, the yields would go up, the quality would go up and, you know, things would get better, you know, was kind yeah. of the idea there. What draws you guys to a vineyard aside from, I guess, being able to work with it, but E either farming or purchasing the the grapes yeah what, what gets you guys excited about a vineyard yeah i mean i think i guess we'll take that a step at it or we'll, let's talk about the farming first is that's more um you know we look at region kind of vine age uh soil types you know that kind of thing um is is what we're what we're interested in um, primarily, you know, and then I'd say the variety is kind of, I don't know, second, I think okay. just cause 
there's so much Pinot, Chardonnay, Cabernet, Zinfandel mm-hmm. planted that we've learned that if if you want a specific variety, you're not going to find it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> generally for from vineyards that you're leasing. Um, and so for us, I think, you know, I, I like to think of it like that should not be the least important thing. But I think the first thing I want when you taste our wine is to be like, oh, this wine is dynamic. It's alive and it's full of energy. Mm-hmm. And that should be the first thing you notice. And then after that, then you start thinking about where is it from? What is a variety? What is whatever? And so it should have that energy. So like whether it's Cabernet or it's Zinfandel or it's, you know, Trousseau Gris or whatever, it should have that vibrancy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're striving for when we we farm the grapes. And then again, yeah, I think vine age, you know, to an extent, some of the vineyard health, I mean, if there's been some vineyards that you're like, this is too far gone um, yeah. and it wouldn't be that interesting. I think, you know, I, but you know, it's like, I mean, I think a lot of, there's a lot of vineyards that do have potential. Um, there's one or two that we, and it's funny too, cause you don't really, really know until you start making wine from it also. Right. Okay. Um, That's a good point. And so we used to kind of say yes to a lot of stuff. And there was one vineyard that like great views, like soils seem really interesting mm-hmm. everything, but just the wine never turned out very good. And so we're like, okay. And the, and the property sold and, and this and that. And we're like, okay, we're we're just going to like be done with this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, and then to an extent now, you know, we're a bit like, if there's a half acre or something, it's like, I can't do this either. You know, sure. we've, we've gotten to the point where that's a little tough. But, you know, I think that we, we tend to look for older vines and then in somewhat cooler regions so that mm-hmm. area around sonoma is a relatively cool area because it has a lot of influence from the the bay right and there's kind of a diversity of soil types too which is nice because that allows us to make some different styles of wine mm-hmm. um and then yeah again to an extent the vine health and it's like is it something that is it like what's the reason for it being in decline you know because a lot of the vineyards that we have aren't or we take over aren't in the best shape. And you're like, well, is it because it's hasn't been fertilized and pruned properly? Or is it because like it's got a lot of eutypa and like wood disease and, and other problems that mm-hmm. we can't necessarily help, you know? So we'll look at that. And that's been, you know, relatively good for us. I think, you know, we've seen enough in your town, you can kind of see something and you're like, oh, this is a good idea. Or this isn't a good idea. Um, and then also the owners too, since we, don't own it, you know, we will meet them and kind of see, is this going to be a good fit? Mm-hmm. Do they get what we're doing? Like, will we have a good relationship? Because, yeah. you know, it's, I like, again, because we don't own the land, like we've come in and out of a few different arrangements. Sure. And sometimes, you know, cause we're like, Hey, we're going to farm organically. You know, you live on the property. It's going to be better for your health. It's better for the animals, better for the environment, mm-hmm. you know, this and that. And they're like, Oh, great, great. But then, you know, they see weeds growing under the vines and they're like, you're killing my vineyard, like, because there's weeds and you're like, no, 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 like, it's fine. Trust me, you know, or like, oh, there's some shoots that aren't perfectly straight. Yeah, the canopy's a little, not, not, not as perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then that is, is challenging because it's like, for what we're doing too, you know, again, I think there's a perception of, 
I, you know, if you sell your wine for a hundred dollars bottle or whatever, and you pay this much for grapes, then sure, it should look all perfect, right? But it's like that's also not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's a reality. I think it, it, it's both. It's like a little bit of benevolent neglect. I think to me personally, I think it makes for a better product, mm -hmm. but also like helps us not spend a bunch of money that isn't needed. You know, and right. we, we really focus on, you know, proper pruning, proper suckering timing sprays right and like the things that and and then fertilizing through compost and cover cropping and it's like how do we maximize the utility of our efforts and not waste energy with things that don't matter mm -hmm. and things that don't matter are perfectly aligned shoots you know leaf pulling like crazy or having like no weeds growing you yeah. know which a lot of those are actually detrimental to like the health of the vineyard too um, in terms of buying grapes, you know, again, that's a, another bit of a challenging thing to say there's, oh, like there's a recipe that we look for or something, mm -hmm. but it's a lot of the similar stuff is, you know, vine age region, again, knowing the grower, I think fortunately for us, because we have so much experience farming vineyards, you know, we can go in and, and see, oh, these are pruned properly. Oh, they're not suckered right these shoots show this, that, and the other disease or, you know, other things. And mm -hmm. that helps us to identify, you know, I think like healthy vines and healthy soils and, and things like that. So that's a, a big thing for us. Um, and then there we can be a little bit more choosy in terms of looking for great varieties and things like that. Okay. But, you know, we're also interested in again, the relationships with people. I mean, yeah. some of the growers we've worked with, it's going to be coming on 10 years now. Right. And so, you know, we see what they have, you know, you know, because it also tends to be oh, certain grapes from certain vineyards or certain, yeah, grapes from certain vineyards do well almost regardless of the variety. You know, it's like, okay, something else came available. Yeah, I trust that this is going to be good mm -hmm. as compared to, again, you know, we usually try out some things and it's like, oh, they don't work. And sometimes it's due to our style of winemaking too. Like we've tried making wine from um, Contra Costa County, like in the Brentwood area, okay. yeah. which a lot of people have a lot of success for. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just like not good enough winemakers or we're too neglectful or something. Like our wines always end up being either mousy or like get VA or, I mean, we even had one Sauvignon Blanc that got all ropey. Oh, so that's really? Like, that's syrup kind yeah. of. Yeah. Which I'd never seen before. Yeah, I've only I've only heard about yeah. it. I've never actually seen. Yeah, and we ended up you know dumping it down the drain and stuff. And it's like, you know, I think there's a certain sturdiness to wines from Mendocino and also Sonoma and Napa that allows or that we had kind of had our our winemaking style. You know, we we rack the wines, we'll aerate them during the fermentation, and then this was almost like a completely other thing where like the wines were much more. You know, I, I say fragile, and I mean that only in as a pejorative in the context of our winemaking. Okay, um, because we didn't, you know, we top up the the wines, but we're not like every two weeks on the button, like sure, you know, whatever. Because we're oftentimes busy doing stuff in the vineyard or installing drains in our winery, or, you <laughs> know, all sorts of crap like that. And so we kind of learned, oh yeah, okay, this region we've tried it enough times, like we're avoiding that and whether it's the soil type or the weather or I don't know what, but like, it just doesn't make sense for us. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, we've, we've, we've shied away from that, you know? Okay. 
what's your process with the grapes once it's time to pick? You're looking mostly at pH or sugar? Or yeah. I mean, we look at both for sure. Um, I think it was about four years ago or something we started tracking pH with our sampling. Okay. And that was, I think, really interesting for us because the sugar and the acid don't always track each other mm -hmm. exactly. And it was, it was a hard transition at first too because it's kind of like, and this is something I always talk to Diego about because it's like in those first years, you know, now you have a new piece of information that you're trying to make decisions based off of, but we don't have any reference to what we were doing in the past. And so it's yeah. like, wait, the pH is doing this, but it could have done that last year, but we just didn't know it. Mm. And we're not letting this affect us. So, you know, it's like you, you, got, you really have to remember that all these things are, you know, indicators and they aren't some sort of truth. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but generally we have like some targets of bricks and and pH that we're looking for. And we see, I, I wouldn't say there's like a specific target. It's more like a, a, a profile, you know? So it's like, mm -hmm. if you see something moving in a certain way, then that gives you the confidence to let it go longer or something, mm -hmm. or, you know, there's certain almost bookends too. It's like, okay, I don't want to make a wine that's 10% alcohol. And I don't want something that's like 3.0 pH, but I also don't yeah. want to pick when it's like, a, you know, 3.7 or 3.8 or something mm -hmm. too, you know? And I think that is interesting. It, it helps us inform our decisions, you know, but of, of course you're tasting the juice and, you know, working on that too. Mm -hmm. So for reds, are you, are you, you stem most of grapes or um, normal cluster or a little mixture of? Definitely both. both. Yeah. I mean, we, we make enough wine where we kind of do all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then now also having this new facility, it gives us the, the freedom to actually be able to do that, um, which has been really good because in Arinda, we were very much maxed out in our space. And then we were um, doing some overflow production up in Sonoma okay, um, at a custom crush place, which, mm -hmm. you know, we always knew like it wasn't ideal, but we knew it was, you know, we were on our path to trying to get our own place where we bring everything together. And we needed a certain amount of production to be able to justify that and so sure. we're like okay these few years while we're doing that like it'll help us continue to support our growers help us like give our employees health care you know yeah pay myself whatever knowing that we're gonna eventually land there so there you know you can do stuff but you don't have as much um, i mean you, you can tell them what to do but then you know how much it's getting done or tasting mm -hmm. really being granular with the tasting it's a little more challenging and so this past year was we had like complete freedom to be flexible and, and do everything and so yeah we do a lot of d-stem a lot of whole cluster a lot of all sorts of things um you know it very variety dependent you know the bordeaux variety is like i don't tend to like whole cluster the the tannins mm -hmm. are the stems are very very tannic and very green we've tried that before and it was just like disastrous and then i think we do tend to pick on the slightly earlier side. And so I were, I'm wary of the stem tannins can be very drying. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So on wines that we do longer aging, like over vintage, either in barrel or over vintage in bottle, we'll see some more of that because it gives the wine a little more time to resolve itself. But in the earlier released wines, they can still be tannic, but it's a more of a, like a fleshier, 
fruitier mm-hmm. tannin, not fruitier, but like a rounder isn't quite as dry as yeah. the stem tannins. We do some of that, but we also will do a lot of either shorter macerations or this, we call it our reverse saunier kind of style where we blend back rosé juice into grapes or carbonic maceration or, or things like that, that tend to lighten the wines. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm like a Northern Frenchman at heart. So I think <laughs> like, you know, Brie and like Trousseau, I'm like, oh, Trousseau, it's too tannic. Like okay. it's, it's not, it's not for me. You know, I'm like a Pulsar guy. Like. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the reverse uh, yeah. Sonia method that you guys do because you've been doing that for quite a while. And I yeah. want to know how you, how you sort of came about that technique. Um, let's see. So that, I mean, you know, I always say this too, like, you know, I'm sure there's no such thing as an original thought. You know, there's mm-hmm. like some Georgian person 10,000 years ago doing exactly what I was doing and whatever. Um, but so the idea kind of came about, you know, wanting to make a fresher wine, but not necessarily being a carbonic maceration. Okay. Um, Cause I feel like outside of Beaujolais, like you taste carbonic maceration and it's very, uh, it marks the wine in sure. a kind of a particularly strong way. And, you know, is, I don't know, maybe less so, but I don't know, it's trendy or whatever. And it's like, oh, I can't do something this popular. Like, that'd be <laughs> too easy. And so the idea was to blanket clusters with juice instead of CO2 gas. So then you wouldn't need to do um, like pump overs or punch downs. Like it would protect mm-hmm. it. And you get like this kind of slow extraction. So, you know, the thought really being like to be able to do a longer maceration while still having a light style of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we did some experiments. We didn't exactly have the right equipment um, in that we were trying to do it in some of our like, you know, one ton picking yeah. bin okay. fermentations. Yeah. And we had some issues there and we we're getting a little bit too much of like the stem extraction. And so we started moving towards destemming and adding juice back okay. um, to really great results. I think we really like how that works because again, you get to go the full, when I say full maceration, I mean, you press the grapes at dryness. Um, so it's usually about two weeks or something. Mm-hmm. And during the length of the fermentation, you know, you extract tannins, but then they kind of will adsorb back onto the skins, go back out, they polymerize, they more stuff's going on. And so there's definitely a distinct difference between like a short maceration and a reverse or this reverse sonye style mm-hmm. um, in that I think the tannins are a little more maybe interesting and longer while still being light. Okay. Um, where short maceration does serve a nice purpose in that it's like a crunchy, like fresh light wine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other one can be a little bit more interesting. And so, yeah, we were, again, it was originally, you know, independently invented uh, okay. <laughs> uh, when I was working with Philippe Vallette, this other, he had another intern, this guy, Olivier Cohen, who makes wines down near uh, Marseille. Okay. And um, he was about to install himself. His family was buying a piece of property that he could make grapes at. And we were, we were talking about this. We're like, you know, I don't look at Taval, like Eric Fifferling or, you know, the long lower wines and other mm-hmm. things. You're like, oh, these are really interesting. Like, what can we do and not be carbonic maceration? And that was this idea kind of came about. And so okay. he does a lot of that. Um, to this day, you know, we do some, 
there's this guy, I don't know if you follow his sub stack, not drinking poison in Paris, yeah. this guy Aaron mm-hmm. Askoff. Yeah. Um, so he had an article about, um, there's a term that he used is a uh, flotaison. Okay. So it's like this French term, which basically means to float the cap. Okay. And you float it with juice, you know? Okay. And so there's okay. a whole, like, I don't know, group of folks in France doing different experiments with that and, you know, doing it and then, you know, separating the free run with the press run and, you know, mm-hmm. these other things that are even more, you know, detailed and maybe sophisticated than what we're doing. Cause we'll kind of throw everything together at the end of the day, but, but it's interesting. And I think it's a cool way to, again, I, I tend towards liking less extracted wines. Um, yeah. This guy, Philippe, that I worked for, he only made Chardonnay and it was like, that's all I ever need to drink is <laughs> really awesome Chardonnay from Northern France. Like, yeah. and there's no tannins, there's no nothing. Like, you know, the idea that you need a bunch of tannins and like a big chunky wine to be ageable or interesting or complex mm-hmm. is like to- totally false. You know, it's like, you need ripeness, balance and like, and good energy, you know? Have you guys been native fermentations from the start of Leilun? For sure. Much? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've never used any yeast. So that's super important to us. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, we, I would say we land between the 10 and 20 parts of sulfur. You know, we'll, mm-hmm. we kind of, the pendulum swings a little bit and we will do some no sulfur bottlings. It's been a little bit since we have, we're starting to do a little bit more you know, again, we make some of the the blends are big enough where you're kind of casting a wide net. And so mm-hmm. when you have 50 barrels and 10 tanks going into a wine, like if one or two of them is kind of weird, like it can cause issues. And so we, mm-hmm. we take a, you know, very measured approach to that. And I think, but we'll never put sulfur at the crusher and only we'll put small amounts maybe starting after malolactic fermentation is mm-hmm. done okay because we really i think you want to see that progression of the different you know native yeasts go through and that's similar to like we avoid using the you know the pied de cuve or the starter sure okay because in a lot of ways that's almost like inoculating you know you're putting a lot of the primary fermentation yeast and not giving those other ones the chance yeah to you're kind of missing going. those early those, yeah those early yeah. ones that, that you know, die out yeah exactly so we will you know if if a fermentation like four or five days isn't really starting to take off or like okay this needs a little help and like let let's the early guys have had their chance and they're yeah. partying and <laughs> like we don't want them to you know take over the party so like let's let's intervene quote unquote and and do that but like it's not a prescriptive mm-hmm. kind of thing do you think the science background you kind of got it davis helps you intervene less or make cleaner wines while intervening less yeah i mean i think you know it kind of again goes back to i think davis it teaches you how to be a scientist how to observe you know take notes how to look for you know control variables like whatever mm-hmm. To the best that you can. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think we, I don't know if it was Davis or just our personality or okay. like, you know, the fact that I think we came up in a time where at once like young enough to not have grown up on, you know, the 
Burgundy and Bordeaux and Napa classics, but old enough where, you know, we were drinking a lot of Beaujolais and Ganavat and mm -hmm. other stuff like that. That is, I almost think of it as like the canonical natural wine, like, mm -hmm. you know, right. the, the people that were kind of, I guess, rediscovering natural wine, mm -hmm. you know, in France. And I feel like very few of those producers were, um, you know, the strict zero sulfur. I mean, they were zero sulfur at the crusher, no yeasts, you know, very little intervention. But um, like when I was working for Julie, um, there was this guy, Jean-Claude Chanoudet, and he would have, they called it the microscope party. Okay. So it was every, I think Wednesday, or I forget the day, but in his cellar, you'd come by, you bring a sample of your problem stuff, and he had a microbiologist with a microscope. Okay. So you come and you're like, oh yeah, this thing's going off or weird. And they look at it and say, oh, there's Glockera, like this non-saccharomyces. Sure. And then you come back, you know, you come out of the little room, your head's hanging down, you're like, oh, I've got this problem. <laughs> and then everyone's sitting around like, well, what can you do? And, you know, there was certain stuff like, oh, this yeast is susceptible to alcohol. You know, you're, you're mm. in the early stages. So if you blend in, you know, 5% of your last year's wine into this tank or you, you know, water the cap with it, okay, that will kind of kill off this yeast. Mm. And so that's an intervention, but you're intervening with your own wine. And I think there's a lot of ways that we try to, you know, and, and then and that's informed by science, right? Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, a scientific understanding of the process. And so I think we try to take steps like that. Like, you know, we don't have the microscope, but like when you smell things or you see things happening, you're like, oh, okay, this needs to be warmed up or this needs to be aerated or this needs to be some other, you know, yeast from another fermentation needs to be added in. And these kind of, Small things, I think I like to call them as like course corrections okay. Um, mm -hmm. as opposed to like a full intervention. Mm -hmm. So we're not really, you know, being heavy handed with yeast or sulfuring or enzymes or filtering or whatever, but it's like, yeah, how do you pump air through, you know, yeah. let's, let's pump air through the wine early in the process to, you know, so the yeast can multiply, have thicker cell walls and we'll go through fermentation better, mm -hmm. you know, especially in vineyards that we know tend to get stuck or have reduction or other issues like that, you know? Okay. And so there's that. And then I think we, again, have certain ideas of, and never, you know, it's, it's all different, right? Like, uh, you know, yeah. ideas of where we want in terms of the, uh, how do I say this um, in a politically correct way? The, the the tastes of the wine we want to be in a certain way and not mm -hmm. be to one way or the other you know mm -hmm. in terms of you know volatility or microbial stuff or or something you know and i think an analogy that i use often is like you know we're trying to capture a, an image of a time and a place and when you intervene you're kind of draining out color you know so it's going mm -hmm. towards black and white mm -hmm. So that's removing like a vibrancy or an energy from the image. But if you're having issues with microbial stability, VA, mouse, whatever, that that creates like a blurriness mm -hmm. to the image. And so it's our job to try, or 
my objective is to try and provide like the clearest picture. And so that may not be like the most, like if it's black and white, but crystal clear, like that's not, I didn't succeed. If it's vibrant in colors, but like completely blurry, mm -hmm. I make it look cool, but like that's maybe not what I'm trying to do. And so you're trying to like turn those two dials and really trying to capture like the right balance between the two. Mm -hmm. And so ideally you don't need to touch the dials, but you know, sometimes you need to by either, yeah, a little bit of air, you know, racking at the right time, blending something, you know, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Like just a little nudge yeah. rather than like a shove. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then, and then we've even, you know, we've, started doing more analysis of our wines in kind of October, November, like okay. post post primary fermentation, more or less post malolactic. And if the malolactic is done, there's still some sugar. And we noticed that the fermentation curve was a little slow, you know, that's a candidate and maybe the VA is kind of high. We're like, Hey, that needs, this barrel needs 10 parts of sulfur. Okay. Mm -hmm. If the malolactic's gone, there's still a little sugar, but the VA was, is not high. And it was like always going kind of slow. We're like, okay, let's see what this barrel, like, let's let it, let's check it again in two weeks okay. and see what's going on. And then, you know, we, we take notes. And so like, we'll take into account maybe that one barrel had 10 parts. Okay. So now that's 10 fewer parts we need to add mm -hmm. mid bottling, or, you know, we keep that into the idea of what, what we're going for. And, we find that again, that little nudge at that at that time will get the wine in the quote correct path, and then mm -hmm. we, you don't have to intervene further with like a heavier sulfur add or chuck the wine or something. And we do throw out a good amount of wine. I mean, okay, ten percent of the wine probably doesn't make it into bottle. Okay, because it's either got too much VA or is reductive or or something. We're always trying to minimize that, but like that's that's the ultimate like way to to stop you know yeah from making bad wines you just don't sell bad wine <laughs> right like you may, we make plenty of bad wine we just don't try and sell bad wine yeah, okay <laughs> you touched on it quickly at the very beginning but how is climate change and things like that how how have those been affecting your vintages the last few years yeah i mean that's i think that's a obviously very important question. Um, and it's one that I don't know, as someone who, whose livelihood relies on like agricultural stuff, like mm -hmm. I probably have my head in the sand further than it should be in that. I feel like not to sound like a climate denier or something, but it's like, I think we're early enough in the problems where like, we can continue to make good wines, like mm -hmm. at least in my lifetime, you know, like 2020, like there was fires, there was a pandemic, there was heat waves, there was all this shit. And we made wines that were okay, you know, and mm -hmm. you're like, okay, that's cool. Like you make rosé or you do something else or whatever. And so I think that'll continue to be true for some amount of time and the wine style may change, but that'll still be there. You know, I think things like when we actually start owning land and planting vineyards, that'll be a different question. Mm -hmm. You know, I think in terms of varieties, um, you know, how it's going to be set up for farming um, to be probably more mechanized because not only 
are there climate issues? There's also like, you know, with labor and other things like that, like, sure. you know, to be able to pay someone a living wage, like doing handwork on vineyards. Like, I don't know if that's going to exist like in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so without the cost of the, without the cost of wine being super expensive, sure. you know, and I think that's another big question. And that's something we can kind of get back to in a second. Um, but then, you know, potentially looking at, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time talking with some of my professors, they were developing, um, great varieties that the majority or it was like 99.9% vinifera okay. um, DNA, but they inserted the like three genes that are powdery mildew resistant. Mm. So that would just immediately get rid of the need for seven or eight tractor passes every year, you know, right. so it reduces labor costs, it reduces emissions, it reduces compaction, you know, all sorts of things. And so I think it doesn't necessarily have a recognizable variety name because it's a new variety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, how he was doing it was like, here's, it's kind of like Pinot. It's kind of like Sauvignon Blanc. It's, you know, most closely related. Sure. But I think things like that are interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about hybrids and, and other things as well, but, um, I'm accustomed to vinifera wines too. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's probably, and I think California is well suited to grow those. So I'm, be happy to continue to do that. You know, I think hybrids are great in regions that otherwise couldn't be growing vinifera stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, again, hopefully California will continue as long as there is water, you know, is it, or is, if you can keep dry farming or using drought resistant mm-hmm. rootstocks, like grapes are relatively low in water usage. If you're smart about it and, you know, watering at the proper times that you can do pretty well with small amounts of water again if you're in the right if you have the right soil type and the right you know whatever and then hopefully you know because just moving north like isn't necessarily always going to be an answer because i feel like the weather patterns it's not just like an even warming warming as you you go up it's like Mm. oh it's you know Mm -hmm. just two degrees warmer it things become more erratic so there could be more uh spring frost more hail more other stuff and Mm -hmm. and you know what are now colder regions. Although, I mean, you know, a lot of places have been doing better, you know, in terms of Germany makes the vintage of the century every year now (laughs) with uh, their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it improves it for some. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I think, uh, I mean, hopefully in, in five or 10 years, we, we would be able to have vineyards of our own. And I think there, I would probably look towards, you know, Clarksburg or Lodi or something that is far away from forests, like has reasonably adequate water supply. I mean, not, you know, I wouldn't be planting, you know, alfalfa or like lettuce or broccoli or something (laughs) that needs like a ton of water, but you know, enough for vineyards. And then it's also relatively flat. So it can be mechanized because again, Mm -hmm. this issue with, you know, what does labor look like and being able to properly pay people and stuff and then also sell wine that is accessible, you know, cause I think for us, I mean, and our wines are, we've done, um, or a big effort of ours is to continue to make our wines accessible mm-hmm. at, a, at a price point too, to consumers. Um, because I think everything's fine and dandy about organic growing and whatever, but if it, 
costs, you know, $40 a bottle, like you're not actually affecting anything mm -hmm. really. Um, and it'd be great if the grocery stores were lined with, you know, wines like ours, as opposed to yeah. stuff that was, you know, big agro farms and whatever. So, yeah, of course. And so, you know, that happens with some sort of scale. And then, you know, that occurs with, you know, just operating as such and trying to be smart about mm -hmm. things like how you make your labels, how you do your bottles, how, how you make the wine too. And like, and how you truck the grapes and all these things like go into trying to minimize, you know, in a lot of ways, like the cost and then the being more environmentally sound, like mm -hmm. align in some weird way, you know, you're like, because for us, I was, you know, when I first started, I thought getting lightweight bottles, I was like, oh, that's going to cost more because they're like eco-friendly. Oh, yeah. But no, there's just actually less glass. So the bottles are cheaper, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, oh, okay, this is great. Win-win. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, give me the, so whenever I call the glass suppliers, I'm like, give me the absolute cheapest glass that you possibly have, the lightest weight bottle, you know, and, and it's good, you know? Yeah. And then. Like with us and our growers, again, we're trying to achieve a certain scale where, you know, it's the same amount of diesel to bring down two tons of grapes is 10 tons of grapes. Mm -hmm. So, and, th and it also costs us, you know, we pay by the hour for a truck. So like, how do we fill up that truck with grapes and mm -hmm. kind of minimize the impact of that and like maximize or maximize like everything that we're doing, like to be more efficient, you know? Yeah. So it's hopefully cheaper and better. Mm -hmm. environmentally what was the idea behind at the at the beginning i guess splitting the leiluna and the, the populace wines into sort of two different labels um, essentially so leiluna that's the stuff we farm populace stuff we buy okay that's like a very you know view from space um mm -hmm. distinction we will do a couple of bottlings in, under leiluna of some grapes we purchased but those are like oh larry has some like 100 year old carignan vines that we want to showcase as their own thing okay or lolonas has like yeah this certain kind of parcel that the chardonnay tastes you know is exceptional and like mm -hmm. it's generally older you know it's like kind of the oldest vines of the property or a way to talk about the growers in a single vineyard sense as opposed to like a blend as well so okay. but primarily like you know we're drinking this astral blend we have our cosmic blend a cabernet like those are from all the different vineyards that we farm. Mm -hmm. And then if we feel that the vintage in the vineyard justifies it, we'll do some single vineyard stuff from okay. this as well. So that's kind of the distinction. You know, when we first started, we weren't making, we didn't have enough surface of vineyards to farm to make more lighthearted um, Leyloon wine. So they were all kind of more okay. serious. And so mm -hmm. there was kind of a serious and playful. Uh, but as, you know, we can't sell... 40 acres worth of like barrel, you know, two years in yeah. barrel, another year in bottle, like our warehouse would be <laughs> full. So we're like, okay, let's make some kind of, and, and you know, it's funny too, because someone would come to the cellar and we're tasting barrels and like the wines tasted really good the first year. And we're like, don't worry, we're going to, we're going to wait till this wine tastes really old and like <laughs> weird and you know, no one's going to want to buy it. So, <laughs> so it's nice to have a more like kind of fruit, and fresh expression of the vineyards that we farm as well. Yeah. I mean, different wines for different occasions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I think that's a big thing for me. I mean, you know, five or six nights out of the week, you know, I'm drinking 
something light and fresh and, you know, hopefully still, like that doesn't mean it's, you know, drinkability and complexity and depth, like aren't mutually exclusive. Right. Like right. I hope that they are, but you know, something that's more primary fruit is like what I gravitate to on the regular, but then yeah. Sunday, you know, you're roasting a chicken and you're like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. Let's drink this like old bottle and yeah. hang out with it and, mm -hmm. you know, be calm, you know, you're not, mm -hmm stressed about what you got to do tomorrow or I don't know if that ever goes away, but <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Yeah. Probably not this time of year for you. Yeah. I suppose or... you've done uh, one of the industry sessions. Oh yeah. And you've also had um, kind of a mentorship for BIPOC and the yeah. LGBTQIA mentorship in wine production, farming, paperwork, things like that. Um, I want to see if you could tell me a little more about that and how, how it came about. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think so many people have offered us the opportunity to learn from them, have helped us out. And I think a lot of those, those opportunities exist, but you know, it's not always easy or people don't necessarily know that that's there, you know, and I, I I'm privileged in being able to be in the position you know, and have the confidence to say, Hey, let me write this producer even to visit or to work mm -hmm. for them or whatever. And so uh, it was, you know, in the, the summer of 2020, um, during the George Floyd protests and things, mm -hmm. it was like, and I think that was a time where, and, and hopefully continues to be a time, you know, or, or hopefully still continues to be, you know, something that we think about is like, Oh, what are we doing and what's performative and what's not and and you know it's like that whole black square debacle thing people are like mm -hmm. oh this is bullshit and whatever and it was like well what actually could help make some sort of difference you know it was like what do i have to offer it's like oh i i know things about running a wine business mm -hmm. and it's like let's make it even though that's always been open and like i have people have reached out to me and I'll help them and talk them through stuff and whatever. It's like, let's make it explicit that that is there. And like, you should write, reach out and be a little bit more, yeah, explicit and organized about it too. Mm -hmm. And so okay. kind of put out a call and there was a great response. Um, you know, I think we ended up talking to I don't know, 25 or 30 people or so wow, that's and, great. and it continued, you know, some folks, I mean, even, to this day now have their own business and stuff like mm -hmm. that, you know, not like very much on their own accord and like being awesome, amazing people, but it's really cool to have seen that and to have been able to, you know, provide some materials that hopefully helped assist in some small way towards what, what they're doing, mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, I think it, the opportunity for people to reach out still hundred percent there, you know, we haven't, explicitly advertise that you know in a minute but it was yeah it was really cool to do that there's um a guy out and he's now lives in france is making wine there's a woman in um, vermont that started her own worker co-op um uh, which is actually really cool i saw her just this past spring okay and i was like how you know how'd you set that up like what's this about and then you you know because i think that's the thing and this is you know, hopefully what's really great and valuable about mentoring people is, you know, 
you end up learning a lot through the experience as well. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's someone who has either a different background or different experiences or has different ideas of what they're trying to do than what you're doing, which is great. And that's the point of everything. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, let me tell you how I did things. Hopefully you can take this and I'll do something either better or different or whatever. And then, that I'm now learning from them too, like mm-hmm. this new mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that's been super interesting, you know? Yeah. It seems like a great program and really welcoming for other people that might want to get into the yeah. business yeah. and help find their way. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, that's always, you know, we, the folks that have worked for us too, we've always encouraged them to start making some wine also. And mm-hmm. like, that's been pretty neat in that, basically in our space, we provide that, you know, we're also in our space, we have room for other people to start kind of making wine within our facility too. And so like, I think it's definitely one of those rising tides and mm-hmm. situations and, and it's cool to have like a group of people together, you know, working on their own things, but hopefully, you know, helping everyone out and yeah, ideas and labor and fixing stuff and whatever it's it's cool yeah kind of going towards a common goal how was it building a new winery in richmond uh it is going (laughs) uh it's fun i mean i i i I jokingly tell diego i'm like well i'm in my happy place now because it's now close enough to harvest where i'm like don't talk to me about anything that isn't a construction project so i'm like i don't want to worry about like you know compliance or this or that or whatever. And it's like, I'm being somewhat facetious, but also kind of not, you know, mm-hmm. like don't ask me about the wine club email. Like that's not what <laughs> I'm doing. Like I'm going to Home Depot, I'm doing this, I'm talking to contractors, you know? Um, so it's, it's a lot, but I mean, I, I do like it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's something that's uh, tangible and much more goal oriented than like, you know, making wine, you're kind of always, it's always, is this going to work? Is it not? Are people going <laughs> to like it? Am I going to like it? Like, I don't know, you know, but mm-hmm. you're like, there's drains in the ground. I accomplished yeah. this, you know, is great. Um, so actually my, my father was a contractor where he was a architect contractor and developer. So he kind of vertically integrated okay. everything. And so mm-hmm. I grew up like, as soon as I could walk, I was, you know, playing with the hammer and the saws yeah. and stuff like that. Um, as a kid and helping on the, job sites and things. So like, you know, I have a good amount of those skills and like doing it. I think as a profession, I can see where, you know, like every pro- profession you are dealing with people and that's annoying and <laughs> there's hard things about everything. I and mean, it's like winemaking too. It's not just sitting on the porch, watching the sunset and yeah. drinking wine, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so this is kind of like, I get to, I almost think of it as like my construct my contractor pop-up that I get to set up at the winery, you know, for one or two months out of the year, you know, it's like, like that too. Like I, you know, was always interested in cooking and like working in the back of the house, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, I absolutely don't want to run a restaurant. Yeah. It's fun to play with it. Yeah. It'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) Oh, I'll do a dinner at the winery or like a bunch of stuff with friends or pop up somewhere or something. But like you get to, to do that for a bit and like have fun with it without and feel, feel, you know, like let the stress be 
like invigorating and not like overbearing. Yeah. You know, kind of get the good parts of it without any of the bad. (laughs) Well, even when the bad parts feel okay, if it's not too much, you know? Yeah. It's like the good kind of scared. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you and Diego, do you guys bring different things to the table with the winery? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think we've definitely found, uh, you know, some of our, our own like strengths, you mm-hmm. know, and have kind of specialized in certain ways. Um, I mean, I think we're fortunate, you know, it's, it's been, it's coming out of the 10th vintage and like, we've made it this long and, you know, we're, we're 50, 50 partners, both the vineyards and the winery. And so like, I mean, it's hard to ex- explain exactly, but like it, it works really well, the partnership, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, we're both, you know, in agreement or we know when to not fight about something, you okay. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's certain things, you know, like I'm much more facilities, construction, mm-hmm. logistics, that kind of stuff. And he helps a lot or takes the lead on, you know, compliance, uh, the okay. accounting, mm-hmm. like setting up certain organizational structures that like I wouldn't have done, but I'm like extremely grateful and thankful that we have that, you know, like mm, inventorying mm-hmm. the inventorying the winery or like, you know, when we first started farming the vineyards, he, he made a Google spreadsheet of everything. And every time you go to a vineyard, you got to put in what you do and mm. how long it took. And so now we have historical data that we can look at. And we're like, oh yeah, like this vineyard takes us, oh, you know, the past seven years, it's averages 20 hours, you know, an acre to prune mm, and, mm-hmm. you know, 15 hours a sucker and we sprayed it this many times. And and it's like, it's very interesting and very, very helpful stuff in terms of projecting and like, oh, should we farm a new vineyard? Do we have the bandwidth? Do we need to hire another person? Do we not? Like, mm-hmm. does this make sense? Like whatever. And it's, it's very super helpful. Cause I think a lot of times like I would, you know, you kind of fly by the seat of your pants or you, sure. you're like, oh, I'll figure it out. And you do, but then you, sometimes you end up beating your head against the wall or something. Mm-hmm. And so, like that's one aspect not to be like old eagles a bean counter and he's like, he's like, <laughs> about this and that and, I, and i'm just the free uh, like, it's not that at all you know um and it's really helpful i think uh in terms of tasting wines and putting things together is to have someone to that you you, you do it together and you can talk through stuff so mm-hmm. you're not just like in your head about it and right you know, do I trust like this specific thing or, you know, that I'm thinking or is it just my, my mood's weird or, you know. Yeah. Here, taste this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then, and then you also kind of need to, if you do disagree, then it's like, you need to justify your position and then convince someone why you're right, you know, or they do vice versa. Mm -hmm. And then you can know when to be like, oh yeah, I see the way you see it and like that's right or you find the middle ground between the two and that's probably better than either one was yeah you know the thing i you know how getting into natural wine too like it always seemed it always kind of felt right Mm -hmm. and i think the the funny story i tell a bunch is like when i met my wife i was in the wine program and and i was like oh hey i'm in the wine program and she's like yeah that's cool like wine's gross. I don't like wine, (laughs) you know, until I brought her to one of the wine tastings, um, that I was like in charge of the 
student wine tasting group mm -hmm. and we did like a crew Beaujolais tasting. And she was like, oh, wow. Like, I didn't know wine was allowed to taste good. I thought like by default it was bad, oh, you know? Okay. And then, and cause she, she liked it. And, she, and then I would joke that she had the best wine taste cause she didn't have any preconceived notions of what wine was supposed to be mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I struggled with when I first got into wine. Cause I, I studied chemistry in college, didn't want to become an academic, like, or work in a lab or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, had ideas of working in a kitchen, but also knew I didn't want to do that. And um, got a job at a winery because it seemed to kind of blend all these things together a little bit, but I didn't know anything about wine. So I was like worried I was going to be a fraud. <laughs> and so this was up in Anderson Valley and the winemaker, I was like, you know, I'm trying to learn about it. And he's like, you should just go wine tasting and taste stuff, you know, like take notes and whatever. Yeah. And I was like, cool. So I went to, you know, the first stop was like the fanciest place in Anderson Valley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have great landscaping and the glass was nice, you know, nice and the building and everything, yeah. whatever. And they had the menu and, and I had my little notebook. I was like ready to be a good wine student. And like, they gave me all these wines and I was smelling them and I was like trying to write down what it tasted like. And I just wrote down ketchup. So I thought it smelled like ketchup, but I was like, I like crossed it out and I got all like, flustered mm. and i was like you're doing this wrong like look how nice this place is like these are nice wines i'm like you need to remember this is what nice wine tastes like and i was like mm -hmm. trying to train myself because i thought that's what we were supposed to do right mm -hmm. and i think that's what's great about with natural wine people are like i'm trying to do what i want to do and like really just listen to yourself mm. and like more of a gestalt like so when, like when i taste wines i'm not trying to smell does it smell like raspberries or blueberries or blackberries or whatever it's more much more broad stroke like you taste with your whole body like mm. how's your mouth feel how's your throat feel how's your stomach feel like what does the the acid profile does it go up or down or like do you feel uplifted or down you know whatever mm -hmm. and it took like a few, you know, years to kind of unlearn the stuff that I learned or I tried to teach myself in terms of wine tasting, which I think is an important thing. It's like, listen to yourself and like, you have better taste than you think you do, mm. like block out the noise. And I think that's what a lot of these wines are about is they're vibrant, you know, energetic and maybe that doesn't agree with you and like that's okay too like you are allowed to not like things mm -hmm. and if someone likes it like that's okay but like again just like you have that confidence and like like what you like you know mm -hmm. and this to me this is like aligns with natural wines and stuff and i think there's more of an openness to that rather than you know sancerre should be xyz flavors and you can yeah. blind taste it because that's what it's supposed to taste like right. you know um and that really helped me as a wine drinker and also as a maker to, again, like to trust yourself more, mm -hmm. you know, which is a hard, really, really hard thing to do, you know? Yeah. Especially when you're starting out. Yeah. And yeah, then um, I guess to plug, <laughs> uh, we have a wine club. You should go to the website, uh, great deals, et cetera. You know, you get a newsletter that uh, won't be written by me in the <laughs> fall. Uh, <laughs> Because I'm too busy doing construction or 
I mean, a lot of great places in town. I mean, Ordinaire, Snail Bar, Bay Grape, Punchdown, Mijote, you know, all the places. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to leave people out. So um, I saw one at Paul Marcus today. Paul Marcus. Oh, yeah. Really great wine shop. Great butcher shop there. Fantastic mm-hmm. deals on pasta at Market Hall. <laughs> I'll show you my, I get the five pound bags all the oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really good stuff. Um, the lines are a little long, but you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Thanks for listening today. Shant and Diego are making some great wines and adding another voice to the growing Richmond natural wine community. They work with a wide range of varieties and their wines can be found in many smaller shops. As you can hear, they're really passionate about farming their own vineyards and work with long-standing growers that farm very thoughtfully. You can find their wines at leilunwine.com or populuswine.com or leilunwine on Instagram. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening and the Instagram at Indie Wine Podcast. And feel free to email indiewinepodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or feedback. If you can tell your wine friends about the podcast too and help spread the word, I'd really appreciate it. Rating or subscribing helps too. There's also now a Patreon set up if you feel like supporting the podcast monetarily to hopefully allow for more episodes, more travel, and to help defray some other costs. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode. Have a good one.